Oh, hi. A hundred episodes. That's a lot. One hundred episodes is a lot, and we thank you for your support. I am, of course, Joe Zakreski, the host of the Red River Horror Podcast. Sitting near me, all the way on the other side, is Eddie Cayazzo, founder of the RedRiverHorror.com. Hey, Ed, how are you over there? Good. There he is. So here for episode number one hundred, we're going to do a little bit of a clip show for you. So we're going back through. Some of our favorite clips from those first number 99 episodes. Now, we may have been gone for a little bit, but we are revved up and ready to go for the Halloween season. So, but for now, sit back, enjoy episode number 100, relax, and here are some of our clips that have come down the channels of fear. In episode number 10, Eddie and I interviewed Daniel Farrens, the writer of Halloween 6. In this next clip, what you will hear is a scene that was not filmed. However, if it was, it would have made the movie just a little better. I don't know why when you asked that, the first scene that occurred to me, and I'm not saying that this is the only one, but there was a scene that I had written where the, the cranky dad like drives up to the house. And in the movie, he just like walks in the house and goes in the basement and gets killed. You know, and then they, of course, made it worse when they lose head up. Um, but in the script, he got home, he looked around the house, the television was on and somebody had been, turned it on to they were having a horathon like in the original movie and they were watching Halloween 3 and he's like what the fuck is this shit and he turns the TV <laughs> off and then he goes into the kitchen and he makes himself a sandwich and he goes back into the living room and somebody's turned it back on to Halloween 3 and he's pissed off and he goes back into the kitchen and somebody took a sandwich and it's like this whole dance that Michael was playing with him and it, it was never shot Oh, so, that's a shame. I that, like that. that. And that's just one example. But there were many scenes like that in the movie, in the script that just were. So now it's not all of this interplay. Now it's he walks in and he gets. In episode 14, Eddie and I were lucky enough to have Jeffrey Reddick on the show. while He was promoting the first movie that he wrote and directed called Don't Look Back. But our favorite story from the Final Destination writer was his story of going from Hillbilly to Hollywood. Check out this clip. Um, and it was also luck in a way. Um, no, but when I, when I was 14, I saw A Nightmare on Elm Street, which is a movie of all time. And, um, you know, I'm this 14-year-old hillbilly living out in the middle of Kentucky in a trailer. You know, we used to have an outhouse. Like, I was that kind of hillbilly. And um, I saw the movie, and I fell in love with it. And I went home, and I wrote a prequel. You know, and of course, reading it now, it was just a very generic, obvious. He's a janitor that, that does bad things to kids, and the parents kill him. Um, but I thought it was brilliant and I found out the information for New Line Cinema and found out that Bob Shea was the president. And so I mailed a treatment to him and he sent it back to me and he's like, you know what? We don't take unsolicited material, but thanks for your submission. And then I had to look up unsolicited because I was a 14 year old. I didn't know what that meant. (laughs) And, um, I wrote him back and I'm like, look, mister, I've seen three of your movies and I spent $3 on your stuff. So I think you can take five minutes to read my story. And he did. He actually read it and got me for my aggressive, how he put uh, some feedback. And him and his assistant, Joy Mann, who isn't with us any longer, unfortunately, um, they kind of took me under their wing. They sent me scripts. They sent me movie posters. They were just very encouraging. 
And so I was going to um, a Kentucky Berea College, and I got a summer internship to study acting at the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. And so I went up there for the summer when I was 19, and you know, Bob and Joy were like, hey, do you want to intern here while you're here for the summer? I was like, sure. And then I ended up getting an agent right off the bat, and I was like, screw college. I'm going to stay here. And I ended up staying at New Line, kind of worked my way up uh, the company food chain um, from 19, and then I sold Final Destination when I was 27. Um, so yeah, it was a, it was a matter of having that, that naivete when you're a, ch- when you're young, where you just have a dream and you want to push it. And I didn't have any master plan by writing that treatment. I just knew that I had a story I wanted to tell and get out there. And it just happened to, you know, I didn't take no for an answer the first time. And Bob was gracious enough to read it and, you know, to again, take me under his wing. So, um, it, it was, it was an amazing story cause I got to work at his studio for so long. So I saw how the sausage was made you know behind the scenes so i learned to kind of not take stuff as personally as i would have normally because i would see a lot of great scripts come in the new line with you know from a new writer and they're like this is an amazing script we have to make it and then we'd get a really bad script in like that had jim carrey attached and all of a sudden it's like well we got to make the jim carrey movie because it's jim carrey Mm -hmm. so i realized like a lot of the creative in this business you know, when times get tough, as I, as I realize the rejection of quality of my work personally, a lot of times it's just, it's not the right fit for them, or they want something that's like one degree different. And instead of taking the time to like make your project one degree different, they find one that is exactly what they're looking for. So, uh, yeah, I got to learn the business side of show business. And so all that stuff that used to would have crushed me as an artist, you know, like, Oh, they, they passed my script. So it must be awful. Like, I don't think that anymore. In episode number 25, Eddie got an answer to his question, what the hell is she reading in the movie It Follows from the actress herself, Olivia Lucardi. Check out this clip from the episode. Wait, where am I going? Uh, oh, do, um... do you have it? Okay, I have it. Uh, yes. <laughs> oh, I might not. Oh, no. I no. not moved with me. I have, I do have it. I own it. Yeah. But <laughs> so it's it's a compact. It's a well. First off, it's a clam phone. Can't you see? Obviously. <laughs> um, but it was it was an old um, mirror compact that was spray painted and green screened with a phone screen. Um, but, you know, obviously it was made up because in that film, you can't tell what time period it is. And I'm the only one that technically has any form of technology. Yes. Uh, so yeah. it, 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 it is really weird, but it's a made up technology. It's not real, except for wherever the fuck it is <laughs> in my house. <laughs> it's, it's somewhere. That's just what so- I, I like packed it with me when I moved. <laughs> But we literally, every time we watch, because it's honestly, it follows as far as modern horror films go. I'm a huge, huge fan. I, it was one of those films that lived up to the hype. Everybody like him, they kept saying, did you see it follows yet? Like when it was making the rounds, you know, trying to go viral. S- similar and it, type release though, right? It was filmed a good couple of years before it really kind of caught traction. Yeah, it was filmed... I think like 2011, no, actually, 13? Well, before it caught traction, but it was, we filmed it in 2013. It came out 2014, I think. Yeah. It was the first film that I did. 
Um, oh, wow. So that was my first film. And then I shot, I was shooting another film, which just came out okay. <laughs> this past year, actually. <laughs> um, but we were filming that in 2014, and then I went, we, it got picked up at Cannes for con cans however it's pronounced however it goes uh, it's the tomato tomato for me i can't tell which one it is me neither. um but <laughs> the can festival got picked up and then it did sundance and then it got released on its own because it got bought by um some production company i can't remember the name of in episode number 29, Eddie and I were interviewing what was initially supposed to be one person, Darcy Weir, who was promoting his documentary about UFO or UAP activity around volcanoes. And he brought with him a friend, Stephen Bassett. And what Stephen had to tell us, well, listen for yourself and see how accurate he was with what would unfold later in the year. Uh, since your your listenership is uh, primarily in a d- different genre, I mean, you're, we're, but they're interested in this subject, let me just sum it up real quickly. Uh, there is an extraterrestrial presence engaging the human race right now. That phenomenon is ET. Uh, there may be some things that are mistaken mm-hmm. for ET phenomena. So that's a fact. That's not even conjecture. The government's known about it since no later than '47. July 47 with the Roswell events. Though there's some indications there were some crashes prior to 47, even prior to the war, that may have been very contained very quickly and kept tight. We don't know for sure. But 47, it's out, the cat's out of the bag. Uh, The government has chosen to embargo the truth of this from the American people and the world's people. That is also a fact, absolutely established beyond a reasonable doubt. There is contact going on between ETs and human beings. That's a fact. We have easily a million reports that have been submitted in writing and emails to the researchers over the last 30 years. A million. Uh, yeah. So uh, I, I kind of feel that's not a – how would you say a mistake or a mm-hmm. – you know? Uh, and these reports are consistent, uh, substantially consistent over broad base. So, so there's your basic facts. Now, as you move away from those – Everything can have a certain probability running from 98% down to 20 or 10%. I don't deal with much below 70, to be honest with you. Uh, I just don't have time for it. So you have that. Now, The uh, what is most no, best for your listeners to know right now is that the – there have been some developments in the last three years which have led me to believe the truth embargo will end soon. Mm-hmm. It will begin with congressional hearings, the real ones, the, the extensive ones, not just the single hearing that was held one day in 1968, the last time they did this. All wow, right. that was we've the last tried time. For, yeah, okay. we've tried to get hearings many, many times, all, all blocked. Uh, a number of people, including me, no way, what's going to happen? Now it looks like it's going to happen. If those hearings take place with the witnesses we expect that will be uh, testifying under oath, uh, I think disclosure and announcement, confirmation by the president will follow fairly quickly. So that's 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 something to know. The biggest event in human history may be coming this spring, just letting you know, okay? Whoa. Playing at every theater in the world at the same time. So, so there's that. In terms of finding stuff, <laughs> let me give you an example. Yes. The day before the inauguration of the la- of the the last president, mm-hmm. this would have been January tw- 19, 2017, 
the CIA announced, and this is a part of sort of the unfolding developments I'm referring to, that 970,000 documents relating to a lot of stuff, uh, out of the ordinary stuff, including the ET issue, uh, were being made available to the internet. They had been available only through the archives, hmm. meaning you'd have to drive to the archive, park your car, have your pass, go on in, sit down, order up something, and look at it, right? Now it was on the internet for all to see. That was then. Uh, this year, John Greenwald was able to acquire, because they made it available, a DVD of... I don't know, a million? I forget how many more documents from the CIA getting in all kinds of things, including MKUltra, ET issue. And uh, what he did, and this is what made the news, all kinds of news was made. And there's a lot of confusion about it. Uh, John Greenwald runs the Black Vault, where for the last 25 years, he's been compiling thousands and thousands of documents, archiving them from FOI requests. He's the master of the FOI. So he took all of these million documents and he did, he, he put them, they were digitized, but he put them into searchable form on the Black Vault and then announced it. So for those of you that have some doubts about the fact that there's some stuff going on, uh, there's about a million to two million documents you can go read, wow. all right, from the CIA itself, okay? Uh, and then uh, I'll finish with this. Uh, probably the most significant development since 1916 was – 2016 – is that uh, the, the, the Pentagon allowed three gun camera footage films mm – -hmm of F-18 intercepts of UAPs uh, out the door. They were given to Christopher Mellon, former Deputy, Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Intelligence. And he, he, put the, he gave them the New York Times. The New York Times then put them up on its website where they have now been seen and all over the world by, I don't know how many, maybe a billion people have seen. Now, these were the first gun camera footages ever released by any government formally, regarding UAP intercepts. All of the world's developed governments, nations, have – there's thousands of these clips of defense planes intercepting these, these uh, UAPs, UFOs, UAPs, and filming them because that's what you have to do when you're a defense plane. You film all engagements with bogeys over territory. Right. You don't go up there to shoot at it. You film it. And all of this film has been canned. It's all been vaulted by every nation because if those films had gotten out, say, 20 or 30 of them, the truth embargo would have collapsed. But so it never happened until uh, December of 2017 when the New York Times released to its website the th two of the three, maybe three, of these gun camera f films. That was probably, I call it the Rubicon. When those films went online, the, the truth embar the, the, the disclosure movement, of which I'm a part, crossed the Rubicon. There was never going to be any going back. And ever since then, we've been advancing slower than we thought because the political situation got fairly intense, uh, but advancing inexorably towards disclosure and the end of this truth embargo. And I think it'll happen this spring. So I will have to correct myself because he was a year off. That was Stephen Bassett, a UAP activist, as he de describes himself, his description of what was coming, that we would get those congressional hearings. Now, they didn't happen right after episode number 29. It was about a year later that that happened. And I, Ed and I, our jaws dropped to the floor because at first we did not believe him in the slightest. 
and you just heard it and you know let us know tweet at us let us tweet at us email us let us know how close like how accurate do you think Stephen bassett was there moving on to episode number 51 eddie and i were lucky enough to have courtney Gaines on the podcast and what you might know him from children of the corn you know that tall one with the red hair aka malachi <laughs> but here in this clip what you're going to hear from episode number 51 is him telling about being all business but also how to stay in character and how the older kids and the younger kids work together and uh maybe a little more about how he was treated um, not me, man. I mean, he, actually, you know, John Franklin, you know, it was his first big break, too. But, you know, he'd done a lot of theater in Chicago and Shakespeare. So he was he was there, you know, with game face on, too. So we, we, were, coming, we were going at it. Um, so it wasn't a lot of messing around. Low budget movie, you don't have a, ton, a lot of time to clown around, you know. But um, but it was Fritz Kirsch, the director. He, you know, he's a great guy. He's funny. So he would keep things light. But he also did some things that were interesting. He had me... He made it a point to do not be nice to the little kids, even at the hotel. So I suspect he did the same thing with uh, Peter Hart. Either that or Peter Hart is just not a nice guy, which is also possible because I've, I've seen him since. But I'll tell a bad story, Peter. He was producing uh, uh, Grey's Anatomy, I think it was, and I came in audition. And he picked up my resume. He's like, oh, you still have it on there. Good for you. Yeah, that's the kind of guy he is. You know, about showing up the corn. Right, come on, Pete. Uh, but uh, he went so so. There was like there was tension that was being created to show up on set. Like those kids did; those kids were scared of me for, in real life as well. <laughs> this next one up is going to be from episode number fifty-six, where we had Preston and Steve's very own Steve Morrison join us on the show. In this clip, what you're going to hear is how. Horror might have pushed Steve into the radio business. Not quite, but it's something that he still got to enjoy within the radio business. And he also appeared in a very well-known horror movie. I, um, years and years and years ago, um, my a friend who kind of helped get me into radio, I was doing stand-up comedy. Um, you know, I'd, I'd gone to school for multi for media. I wanted to be in, in movies and do television and all that stuff. And then I was doing stand-up though. And he was working at a radio station, uh, WBAB on Long Island. And, um, um, you know, I went into, he had, can you come record some commercials for your appearance at this club? And I did. And I was like, wow, you know, this is, I can do everything. I can voice, I can write, I can do the whole thing and create these little skits. Uh, and, and so the, the radio career was off and running. But long story short, he was a massive horror fan as well. And we both started writing things and started kind of contributing things to Fangoria when we could. Or wow. uh, he was friends with Forrest J. Ackerman, who is a guy who edited and, and created the magazine Famous Monsters of Filmland years ago. So he also became friends with Tom Sabini. Oh, and man. So in that remake of Night of the Living Dead <laughs> that Tom Savini directed, you know, because they let the, the rights to the original one lapse. So you can go get a one dollar copy at a CVS of Night of the Living Dead. Um, uh, they did that that remake, that color one. I'm one of three of the only flesh-eating zombies in that remake of Night of the Living Dead. That's, <laughs> wow. Whoa, what a nugget. Yeah. Okay, wow. that is. And yeah. it, was, it was shot out in Western PA, as yep. was the original. Yeah. Wow. Outside of Pittsburgh, yeah. That's incredible. And you know what's funny is I have this written down because I was actually going to bring that movie up. Were because, you really? Well, because... You know, Tom Savini is active when we do Tony. We do on Twitter, hashtag Tony Todd Tuesday, yes. who is the star yeah. of that remake. And, and Tony Todd was like the, the nicest guy. You knew this yeah. guy 
I mean, that was before Candyman. Yep. Um, you know, and 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 the Star Trek: The Next Generation. But he was yep. just the the coolest guy. And uh, he came in, and 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 uh, you know, we were like. You know, oh my God! Uh, because they were really starting to make some leaps and bounds ahead in the in the prosthetic makeup stuff. Um, so a lot of the groundwork that you saw, you know, now with what we perceive the uh, the, the 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 current state of uh, zombie makeup to look like, yeah, those guys were doing it. And and Sabini was directing. I think the movie is solid. My one issue with it is is that that was the seminal. Oh my God! I can't believe what I'm seeing. Movie when it came out. You know, it, it, it sent it sent people running for the exits. They they couldn't believe it. And this one was, I, I think, when it was released theatrically for the first time, they may have altered it. It was like PG. They 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 took out. There was a ton of of real graphic stuff that they took out. And I mean, the performances are good and everything, but I mean, you know, it's like <laughs> it's like my issue from uh, the original Evil Dead. Which is a, a masterpiece. I love it. It really is. To Evil Dead Two, which is essentially a remake of Evil Dead, mm -hmm. and there, you know, there are little things that trade out. I'm like, there is something to be said for that visceral, you know, slamming stuff. And that has been our clip show, episode number 100. And before we close it out, we want to spend, give out a special thanks to those who have made the interviews possible, those who make the website possible, those who have helped out in any way they can. For example, our friend of the show, Steve Feast. Thanks, Steve. He was our first uh, sponsor with KeystoneRetro.com. If you go back to those old episodes, we were plugging that site hard. Um, Stacy Lane Wilson, all of her great articles that go on the website. Stacy also facilitated a lot of those interviews. She made those possible, and we can't thank her enough for that. We have Brooke, Brooke Lewis-Bellis, who is a Philly girl. She's ours. We love her so much. She's a, such a great supporter of the show, and we support her with everything we got. Uh, who else we got? Nick Cush for writing all those articles. He had an appearance on the show, and now we have Stephen Beeson who's taken over that job, and he's done a great, fantastic job, and he's a lot of fun to talk to. He's got his own movie in the works, so he'll be back on soon. Uh, who else do I got? Who am I also missing? Steve Morrison. That was just unbelievable having him, who's a local guy who's been a part of our lives for so many years. He's now in the Radio Hall of Fame. It's been fantastic and such a pleasure to have done what we've been able to do in these first 100 episodes. And we can't wait to continue to expand and grow for the next 100. And let's have a little, little clanky clank. Yay. <laughs> uh, thanks again, everybody. And remember to keep traveling those channels of fear.